Now, the connection between tucking into a cream donut rather than sticking to your diet and deciding whether to encourage more cheap flights now rather than reduce air travel in the future for the sake of the environment may seem a tenuous one. But not to Daniel Reed, Professor of Behavioural Science here at the Warwick Business School. For a start, both those choices involve what he and his fellow researchers have called intertemporal trade-offs, trading off one benefit in the here and now, that donut, for a quite different benefit, a lean body, sometime in the future. And the whole process is not as straightforward as you'd imagine. Well, that's the subject of this Warwick Business School podcast, and Professor Reed joins me now. Now, Professor, you begin your paper by describing experience we'll all have been familiar with as children, being told, no, you can't have a packet of sweets, they'll spoil your dinner. And it seems our parents, probably without knowing it, were instinctively familiar with your concept of intertemporal choices. Could you perhaps elaborate? Well, that's right. Well, intertemporal choices are choices involving um, trade-offs over time. And every decision we make is, in fact, an intertemporal choice. So um, when the parent understands that choosing to eat um, sweets now is having an effect on future pleasures. And so you're trading off future pleasures against um, current pleasures. And it may be that if you knew about that, if you could have understood the trade-off you were making, you might make a different decision. Now, a child probably wouldn't. He or she would go for the immediate sensation. But as we grow older, isn't the process very simple? We make a cost-benefit analysis of the gains and losses and then make our decision. Simple as that. Well, it sounds simple, but I suspect that everybody makes choices all the time without thinking about the future. So an example I like to use is imagine you go to the shop and you're looking at TVs and you buy uh, or you're thinking about buying a large screen TV. Are you at the same time thinking, well, if I buy this large screen TV, my pension plan will be reduced by the amount I'm going to pay for this TV plus whatever interest that money would earn up until the time I retire. I doubt too many people think of that spontaneously, and yet it's an important consideration. So how did you plan your experiments to find out just how people worked? Okay, well, the experiment that um, we're talking about today is a very simple one. So intertemporal choices are studied typically by asking people to make trade-offs between money. And you might ask, for example, would you like £100 today or £150 in a year? And what we find typically is that people are quite impatient. Um, um, They will very often choose the £100 now over £150 in a year, even though they very likely have money in the bank earning perhaps 1% or even 0%. Consequently, they're turning down an incredibly good investment in order to get some money now, which perhaps they'll use for immediate gratification. So the underlying idea of the experiment is that if you can remind people of the future consequences um, of their choices, just like reminding people about the effect of buying a TV on their pension plan, that you could make them more patient. And the method we used to do that was very simple. We simply mentioned that the option is 100 now plus zero in a year. The choice is between 100 now plus zero in a year and 150 in a year. So there are two options, 100 now and 150 in a year. But you can describe the 100 now as 100 now plus zero in a year. It's that adding that zero there, the plus zero in a year, that reminds you of the fact that 
there are other options which do offer something in a year, and maybe you should pay more attention to those. And so adding a zero is, is simply a shorthand to summarize that, that, that effect. In the paper, we talk about the asymmetric attention to opportunity costs, which is a slightly longer way of describing the same thing. Where does patience come into all this? Because you concluded, all right, I'm just looking at the headline, to become more patient, add a zero. What do you mean? Uh, Well, it's just simply that the adding a zero is a kind of very subtle and almost unconscious cue for, for you to think about what the future, the alternatives are to the zero in the future. So what we're doing is we add a zero to the, um, the sooner option. So the hundred pounds now we say, and zero in a year. By adding that zero, we're kind of reminding people that there are um, consequences to, to choosing the hundred pounds now, that they'll get nothing in, in a year. And if that's contrasted or compared with getting something in, in, um, else in a year, in, this, in the, my example, 150 pounds, then we kind of subtly cue people to think about th- that giving up 150 pounds, and it becomes weighted more in their decision-making than it would otherwise. So it's a case of reframing the terms of the deal and stressing the benefits of waiting rather than the immediate pleasures of instant gratification. That's right, but doing it in a very subtle way. In fact, all of my research, or a great deal of it, concerns... Um, reframing um, choices um, to shift people's attention from one aspect of choice to another. And um, they often have great consequences, and this is one, one example of, of such a consequence. Uh, so far, we've been talking about fairly one-dimensional choices. Uh, presumably, though, there are implications for the way in which individuals and society make more complex calculations. That's right. I mean, there are, there are implications, and I think that one of them is simply that if we emphasize the um, opportunity cost of making short-term um, or myopic or impatient decisions, we will um, you know, lead people to make more lo- longer-term decisions that are perhaps better for themselves in the future or even better for society in the future. The examples you gave at the beginning of the jam, donut, and flying are examples where it's a social choice or a personal choice in the first case, the jam donut, and a social choice in the second case. And um, exactly, I think there are implications for those kinds of choices. What are the implications on groups of people, societies, corporations, governments, and the way they make their choices on our behalf? Right. Well, I think that um, to a large degree, people naturally focus on the present. So giving up um, you know, something now is, is very painful for them. And I think that um, governments, let's choose governments as an example, often kind of go along with that and focus very much on satisfying people's immediate pleasures and d- don't focus as much on, f- on satisfying their longer-term um, um, goals because they know that people are not thinking about those on automatically. So I do think that one of... If, if, One of the goals I would have is for um, governments to kind of understand that by doing so, they are having perhaps, by by accepting people's preferences, by saying, okay, people want things now, so let's give it to them, that they are in fact damaging um, the future of society. And for governments to to try to find ways and to actively seek ways to uh, make people, to make people think about 
the future and to want um, to, to, to benefit future generations um, as well or more perhaps sometimes than current generations. But haven't governments from time immemorial done that, given the people bread and circuses? Yeah, that's, that's right. I think the, one of the um, potential um, uses of the kind of research I do is to think about what, if we understand what can change people's preferences so we can make them actually want um, the future outcome the good future outcome rather than the perhaps lesser um, immediate outcome, that then governments can actually, you know, to, to coin a phrase, have their cake and eat it too. They can actually um, offer people alternatives or choices in a way that makes them actually want the, f- the future thing. So it's, it's, it's not that they are forcing people or dragging them, kicking and screaming to the better, better future outcome, but actually change their, their current preferences in favor of that future outcome. So the adding a zero is one example of that, simply mentioning to people and emphasizing the future opportunity cost of their, um, of their f- f- present-oriented choices can make them more um, patient. And there are other ways as well of framing um, f- future-oriented choices to, um, to, to, to make them more attractive to people. And so how would that operate, say, in the world of corporate decisions at government or at business level when they go into global summits, international conferences, government decisions and so on? Well, that's, those are very difficult questions. I don't know how well I can, I can answer it. But I will say that for um, often just there is a, what's called a principal agent problem that um, exists in these kinds of decisions where the people who are involved in um, making decisions or advocating them have a relatively short time horizon, perhaps because they're looking at an election coming up in the very near future, perhaps because they're the CEO of a corporation and expect to be, you know, not, not to be there in perpetuity or and 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 want and know that if in fact they don't make profits this year they won't be there in in perpetuity so so one of the challenges for getting um organizations and governments to think in the long term is this problem of um of the sort of short term the short time horizon of the decision makers themselves um but so, so and my work doesn't address that specifically because I can't, you know, I don't do studies looking at how decision makers are changed. But what I can say is that there are ways of describing future outcomes and presenting future outcomes which can make um, people, decision makers of all kinds, even in corporations, understand the consequences, the future consequences, and make them um, more patient. And why do you think this is an area, specifically for a business school, as a behavioural scientist here, why do you think this sort of area of study has implications for corporate finance or business order? Well, I think if it, there are numerous answers to that. One of them is that a business school is not you know, just a school for teaching people how to become rich and exploit others, right? A business school, rather, is... Um, a, a, a school that investigates many aspects of society and which have to do with with business, with management, with the um, interaction with uh, of, of people in, in organizations and how people make decisions. So a business school is quite a broad um, 
undertaking. I, I, I wouldn't want to say that it's, it's merely teaching, in fact, perhaps not at all, teaching people how to, how to get rich. Perhaps in um, finance they help people to do that. But most of the time what we are interested in doing is teaching people how to be better citizens in a business-related environment. And I think that you know, understanding the kinds of trade-offs that society and businesses have to make involving the present and the future and understanding how you can make better trade-offs is a fundamental um, goal, of, should be a fundamental goal of, of any business school, and I think it is. Um, and at, um, at the Warwick Business School, where we have um, a dedicated behavioral science group, what we do in that group is try to understand human behavior in all its aspects and relate them to, to business life. But we are not focused on you know, ma- making people rich as much as we're trying to focus on making people better citizens, um, both in society and in, you know, in the organizations in which they operate. But in this context, isn't it really quite simple? You just teach them how to understand immediate and delayed gratification. Well, the trade-offs are never that um, simple. You know, in experiments, we try to strip things down to their simplest, so in order to understand specific principles. And we spoke about the um, the, um, the zeros, but often the trade-offs are actually quite complex. You know, you can, well, for example, you mentioned the jam donut. There's no doubt that, you know, the jam donut is perhaps more fun right at the moment than than the alternatives in the future. And it might be that the spike of pleasure you get from a jam donut um, is greater than any spike of pleasure you get from being, you know, um, slightly more healthy in in, in the future. So the trade-offs are complicated. And I think that um, intertemporal choices understood in their most fundamental way are not just simply less now versus more later, but they're much more one kind of thing now versus another kind of thing later. And the question of how to, you know, decide between these quite qualitatively different um, events is, you know, is, is an additional challenge. In fact, some of my research involves that, you know, going, looking at those challenges specifically. And again, at the risk of repetition, how does adding the zero develop patience in us all? I think adding a zero is a way of, by itself, is just an example. But what it does is it tells us, that, look, just a small amount of additional attention played to the future costs of current decisions can make you more patient, right? And that's the lesson of the, the zero research. So if you stress that there's a cost mm-hmm. to taking the immediate option, even though it may bring you an immediate gain you're more likely to change people's behavior and in doing so make them more patient. Right. Well, I use the term costs to, to as a shorthand for opportunity cost. And this is just um, some language from economics. And an opportunity cost is what you have to give up in order to get something now. So if you are to choose an um, you know, early gratification, there may be something that you have to give up um, in order to um, to achieve that gratification, and that would be the opportunity cost. And so, um, so, th- so th- this is what I'm, I'm, I'm referring to when I mention um, costs. And it may well be that taking immediate gratification has no opportunity cost, or at least the opportunity cost is well worth taking because the immediate gratification outweighs all 
um, f- you know, all, all future um, benefits that would come from forego- for foregoing it or passing it on. I actually am completely in favor of people, um, you know, having fun and obtaining immediate gratification. It's just that there are occasions in which immediate gratification has a future cost, and if and what we should do is be aware of those and ask ourselves if we want to to bear it. So I started out with the example of. Um, the TV, buying a big TV, and it has a cost in that your pension will certainly be smaller because of it. Now, you may be willing to bear it. You may say, well, look, if I think about the stream of pleasure I'm going to get from this TV, you know, up until it packs it in, and I think about the benefits I would get from putting that money in my pension plan, the TV greatly outweighs the the pension benefits. Even if I forget about uh, the fact that, that the pension benefits are delayed, then by all means, buy the TV. It's just that we should be aware that that is what we are doing. Can you give me some other examples of these more complicated decisions? I mean, one of them you referred to was government attempts to control pollution, for example. What would be going on in the minds of a government formulating policy? Well, for a government to um, fight pollution will require reducing some kind of consumption in the present. It's inevitable, right? So right now the uh, um, UK government has decided to put a third runway in Heathrow, right? Now there are inevitable consequences of that in terms of greater carbon emissions. I mean, carbon emissions are not smog, but um, greater carbon emissions, more flights, and, and so forth. But for the, um, and, you know, some people don't want the third runway, but many do. And the reason they want it is because it will make, you know, travel, both business travel and personal travel easier, it will enable us to fly around. And so there's an earlier benefit from doing so. And, um, but there will be long-term costs in terms of more um, emissions. Um, in the world. But one of the key things that's an issue here is that those emissions, those carbon emissions, are in some sense um, invisible. These are the opportunity costs of putting in a third runway that are not evident to, um, at least not to every decision maker, and perhaps not evident to enough of them to make a difference to the government's decision. And I suppose these decisions are immensely more complicated by the fact that you know, these corporations, these governments are not single entities, they're individuals, all with their individual take on what's yeah. instant and delayed gratification. Uh, abs- absolutely, yes. And the moment you get into uh, groups or collectives making decisions, then you have, uh, you know, conflicts between the people having different values and also different ways of evaluating um, the, 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 f- the future. So people differ greatly in their, how, much they, how much weight they put on the present versus um, the future, and also what is important to them, what things that they care about. Um, you know, for some people, what they really care about is facilitating perhaps business travel. For other people, what they would care about is ensuring... Um, you know, a, a terrific environment for future generations. And there'll be some people who do not see, who see that the way to achieve the great environment for the future generations is by facilitating business travel and, and so forth. So we have this n- bundle of people, each of whom have not only, um, they have different um, values, different things that they care about, different degrees of patience and impatience. They will have different stakeholders. Um, so if you are a politician, you will you will represent a community of people who have particular values and you will want to represent those values and to as well as to ensure that you yourself will get um, 
get elected in the, in, in the future. So these are all, this is a very complex situation. And my research on interchangeable choice addresses one aspect of it and what behavioral scientists and, in fact, people, um, scientists in general, social scientists in general, hope to do is to understand all the various aspects of uh, choices and, and put them all together. Right. And it's it's a big job. Let's look at one other area that, um, you know, there are implications here on how much information we actually take in from the world. Mm. And your conclusion seems to be, again, quite depressing, not very much. Uh, yes, I think that's right. I, I think that uh, when... Uh, we st when you sit down to start studying decision-making, you might start with the assumption that if you give people a choice, even a very simple, especially a simple choice, perhaps like the ones um, I give 100 now and 150 later, that people kind of immediately, you know, process that those choices in all their complexity, which is, is not great, and then make a decision based on them. But another view is that really what people do is they might look at one aspect of the problem and, um, and decide based on that. So, for example, you might just simply say, okay, I have 100 now, 150 later. Uh, I'm a, you know immediate gratification kind of guy, so I'm going to take the 100 now. And you really haven't thought about, for instance, the fact that there is a trade-off to make at all. You just thought there's something now and something later, and I want the thing now. And by... Um, and by reframing the decision, you can kind of shift people's attention a little a little bit. In this case, shift people's attention to think about uh, the future consequence, maybe slightly more willing to make a trade-off. But even with very simple decisions, people tend to make decisions in a very low information way. And, and so one of the reasons reframing and nudging is so powerful is, uh, is because with a very small change to the choice context, the way in which choices are made, you can have sometimes a quite profound effect simply because you've pushed attention from one aspect of the choice option to another, and that aspect to which you've now directed attention leads to a different preference than the one that, 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 that than what people perhaps were spontaneously taking uh, without the change. So. What can we conclude from this in terms of, let's say, formulating policy on the basis of surveys, questionnaires, and dare I say it, referendums? Uh, okay, well, yeah, well, I think that what we can conclude is that to, to, if you find a close outcome in a survey or, or a referendum, it's likely somewhat arbitrary. This, that if you would ask the questions in a slightly different way or on a different day, perhaps, um, perhaps even at a different time of day, you know, or if, if, the, if the climate had been slightly, or the weather had been slightly different on the day of choice, that you could get um, uh, different preferences. And to use um, a specific, you know, choice um, pattern, like a specific outcome, as an index of the truth, um, the, the true values of people at a particular moment in time is probably um, misguided. And I think that's a general result from, from behavioral science. People are so, people's preferences are highly malleable, especially when their preferences are, are, are close, that uh, uh, no single measure actually captures those preferences. So I wouldn't conclude from a, a single study of intertemporal choice 
even if I had a national sample of respondents, that this is how patient or impatient people are. What I would conclude is that when I ask this specific question at this time, etc., that this is the answer I got. But if I had asked a slightly different question, which looked perhaps even identical to, um, to an outsider, and I asked it at a different time, I would not be surprised to find um, different results. So I would say that if you get a 90% majority, then probably that's a pretty good reflection of people's preferences. If you get 55%, I would say that you really, the next day you could have got a different different result. So referenda is, are good examples of this. Very often they're quite close, and that suggests that they may not be good indices of um, public preference. Professor Reed, thanks for sharing your thoughts. I'm Trevor Barnes, and this has been a core podcast for Warwick Business School.